Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows. From an incredible roster of artists and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. In the last episode, you heard that the rock stars who frequented the channel were not always on their game. Unlike studio work, which is tightly controlled by producers and state-of-the-art tech, live shows are subject to many more factors. Environmental, physical, emotional, and... Let's call it chemical. Sometimes it comes out right. Other times... Not so much. Learning the craft of studio mastery is nowhere close to playing live night in and night out at venues packed with rabid fans. In the mid-60s, American bands like The Doors, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and even The Beach Boys were innovating new ways to play rock and roll. Psychedelic or acid rock morphed into hard rock and eventually into heavy metal. In the UK, the Beatles paved the way for the heavy metal wave of the late 70s and early 80s. It was louder, harsher, and seemed far removed from the pioneers of rock, like Elvis, Chuck, Jerry Lee, and Buddy. Chachi LaPret is a Beatle historian and host of the syndicated show Breakfast with the Beatles and a podcast, Get Back to the Beatles. In 1966, two songs in particular by the Beatles were inspired while under the influence of LSD, both composed by John Lennon. And these acid experiences manifested itself in John's music. John read Timothy Leary's book, The Psychedelic Experience, and followed the instructions on the use of LSD. And John's use of the drug for the third time certainly inspired the song Tomorrow Never Knows. It's filled with sound effects, backward tape loops, Ringo's hypnotic drumming, a fantastic song. Tomorrow Never Knows was an early introduction into acid rock and is really as a favorite amongst many Beatles fans. Another is She Said, She Said. A great example of the creativity John Lennon experienced while under the influence of LSD. And one incident in particular inspired that song. John was at a party where many of the famous party goers were under the influence of acid and LSD, including actor Peter Fonda. Fonda kept coming up to John, insisting that Fonda knew what it was like to be dead based on an experience that Peter Fonda had as a young boy. He was shot in the stomach accidentally and his heart had literally stopped beating. So it wasn't exactly what John wanted to hear at the time while under the influence and it literally freaked him out. And that experience again described in the song's lyrics. She said, she said, and Tomorrow Never Knows, both songs inspired by the use of LSD and certainly an early acid rock song too by the Beatles. From acid rock, the Beatles dabbled in heavy metal. Certainly one of the most profound examples of that was in the White Album, the double record set, a song called Helter Skelter. It's really a playful song when you think about it. Helter Skelter is a ride at an amusement park. It's just an elaborate slide that goes in all directions, and it's called the Helter Skelter ride. 
But Paul really wanted to rock on this. He really wanted the Beatles to cross into that heavy metal kind of a category. And all the things that inspired that song from Charles Manson on, it really was an early example of the Beatles' ability just to cross lines and dabble in all kinds of genres of music. And they did that with Helter Skelter being such a great early heavy metal track from 1968. In 2015, VH1 selected the channel as one of the 10 most legendary heavy metal clubs of all time. VH1 wrote, quote, Who played there? Metallica, Slayer, Alice in Chains, Misfits, Black Flag, Lita Ford, Hawkwind, Overkill, Gang Green, Suicidal Tendencies, Wyatt Ruled, a confluence of Boston's college-connected bohemia and Southie-adjacent roughneck rock and roll. The channel dominated the city's hard and heavy scenes throughout the 80s. End quote. In Boston, the heavy metal scene was vibrant, and local bands were anxious to play on the massive sound system available at the channel. From the very beginning, heavy metal was uh, welcome at the channel. They had a loyal following of fans, and for the most part, uh, they were easy to work with. Uh, many metal bands would start uh, playing at the channel on our new music review nights. That's when we would feature new bands and the bands or the management were responsible for promoting the show. We would give them tickets and they could sell the tickets. I think the cover price was two bucks or they could give them away. The intent was to get uh, their fans to come to the show and if they showed that they could attract uh, you know, some people, then they would move up and be opening acts for headliners or eventually headline themselves. Many bands uh, at the channel started off that way. So on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, we might have three or four uh, heavy metal bands and they would all try to bring in their fan base. And, you know, there might be several hundred metalheads there on a night when normally it would be dead or we might even be closed. One of those local bands was Wargasm. Often referred to as a thrash metal band, Wargasm has always viewed its music as more of a hybrid of thrash, traditional, and the new wave of British heavy metal. They quickly became frontrunners in Boston's heavy metal scene, with brothers Barry and Rich Spielberg joining Bob Mayo to form a powerful trio that played their music heavy, fast, and loud. Their musical chops were undeniable, and their legend began to grow, eventually earning them respect and admiration from the more insular and aggressive punk and hardcore scenes. Wargasm helped bridge that gap, their aggressive stance and precision playing earning them respect which would lead to spots with national touring acts like Nuclear Assault, Chromags, and Biohazard. Crossover shows with hardcore and metal bands didn't always work and sometimes led to trouble in the pit, with slam dancers and headbangers both battling for space near the front of the stage, often keeping one eye on each other and the other on stage divers flying by overhead. Bob Mayo is the lead singer, guitarist, and creative force of the band. When Wargasm's first album came out, we did a big blowout show there with Tony Berardini and WBCN. I think his show was called Raw Power at that point, his heavy metal show. That really cemented our status. The channel really was the obvious choice. It was the biggest, highest profile place to do something like that. That show was covered in the globe the next day. I mean, for us, it was a big deal. As a fan, going to an underground show at the channel, Motorhead, Ramones, Voivod, Typo Negative, Flotsam and Jetsam, Fate's Warning, a lot of the bands that we we worshipped back then, and 
and everyone in the scene knew it would be a great show if it was at the channel. Metal was also beginning to get commercial airplay. Metal Mike Colucci was host of WBCN's Heavy Metal from Hell and remembers the channel and the metal culture of those days. channel was born probably at a perfect time because it was pre-MTV. Radio was a big deal. It's, well, then it was a very big deal. And being in the Boston market, you had college radio, some shows that are still around since the early 80s. BCN's contribution in the metal world was the general manager at the time, Tony Berardini, had an affection for hard rock. And he had a specialty show on that ran on Sunday nights. It used to run 10 to 11 p.m. after Nocturnal Emissions, which was championed by Oedipus, our program director. Some of the earliest metal shows that put the channel on the map for me was one we talked about earlier, which was uh, Metallica, Wasp, and Armored Saint being the on the list of if I could be at a show, I would want to be at that show. The channel was also a, a really cool place because... It wasn't primarily known as a metal club. It was known as a place on any given night you could see anybody. You could see Overkill. You could see James Brown, Red Hot Chili Peppers, a local local metal night we did. There was a place for, for somebody to hone their craft. The other unique thing about the channel was the cage. Now, for someone who, who was underage... You could go to the channel and see the show, but you could not drink. If you wanted a drink, you went into this play schoolyard graveyard where you had to get by the nice large man with either a stamp or a wristband, and you went into this small area to consume alcohol as much as you could, and then you could go back outside, but you could not drink outside of that cage. Metal shows were standard fare for all the years the channel operated, whether national touring acts like Motorhead, Metallica, or Molly Hatchet, locals like Malaya Rage and Extreme, or even pretend bands like Spinal Tap. The metalheads could always be counted on to show up and show off with leather, chains, and lots of big hair. Pretty interesting, you know, to see different types of people coming into the club. Yeah, they were metalheads, but they were also looking for something different, something more. And they'd come in, you know, with uh, dog collars and spiked hair. And uh, one time, a girl actually had a guy, she was holding him with a leash. And they thought it was real cool, you know, come and see Spinal Tap, you know, they thought it was the coolest thing. Life on the road for a touring band can be a bitch. More often than not, the road to rock star status is chaotic at best soul-wrenching and life-force sucking at its worst. Few bands survive, fewer succeed, and fewer still attain any level of commercial and artistic success. Metallica, a bona fide superstar rock band, has been at it now for nearly 40 years. Formed in the blistering L.A. underground thrash metal scene in 1981, they quickly emerged into the mainstream, receiving critical and commercial success. But the band had more than its share of misfortunes over the years. At the start of 1984, they were on their Ride the Lightning tour with Wasp and Armored Saint and were scheduled to play at the channel. 
Metallica was scheduled to play on a Wednesday night, and we got word they were delayed because of snow, and that they couldn't make the gig, and that it would be postponed until that uh, Sunday. Later, we found out that Lars Ulrich, the drummer, was delayed in England with an immigration problem, and that's why they they, they couldn't come on uh, Wednesday. So they did end up showing up on Sunday, and uh, they played with you know two other bands, Armored Saint and uh, Wasp. And for the most part, it was not a very successful show. There was only a few hundred people there. It got worse. As a story on WAAF Radio by Tony Copabianco titled, That Time Some Boston Locals Stole Metallica's Gear Out of Their Van, relates. The year was 1984, and Metallica was touring the U.S. in support of their album, Ride the Lightning. Unfortunately for them, the new year was not off to a good start. After they played Boston's Channel Club on January 14th, the band soon discovered that some locals had stolen their gear from their van just outside the venue. None of the van members took the theft harder than Hetfield, who at the time became very reliant on a certain Marshall amplifier that helped him deliver the kind of sound he wanted. Now in the middle of a tour with no equipment, Metallica were able to borrow some gear from Anthrax to get them through the remainder of their dates. Decades later, a similar story hit the news about Blistered Earth, a Metallica cover band from Portland, Oregon, had their van and all their equipment stolen. After Metallica heard about the story, they reached out to Blistered Earth and paid for all of their replacement gear. That tour was the last to feature bassist Cliff Burton, who was killed two years later in a tragic bus accident in Sweden during their tour in support of the album Master of Puppets. Extreme, an art metal band from Malden, a suburb of Boston, had recently signed a major deal with A&M Records and were scheduled to headline a sold-out show at the channel. Previously, the band was known as The Dream and had been managed by Joanne Cody. Joanne and the band had a tense split-up and a subsequent name change. So I was working at a health club that was next door to a Brigham's ice cream parlor that I frequented. And I ran into Paul Geary, who was the drummer for The Dream and Extreme. So I was coming out, he was coming in, we ran into each other and he said, I'm in a new band, it's all original, I'd love for you to come and see us, we're rehearsing tonight. I said, great. He gave me the address. It was the old Cambridge Music Complex. That evening, when I came to meet them and, and listen to them, they asked me if I could help them promote the band. And so that was initially, from the get-go, how I got involved with them. So uh, the band was gaining popularity, and we had a very devoted fan base. We were drawing some decent crowds, and then all of a sudden I'm getting phone calls from a woman who said she was an attorney, and that she worked for a band from New York, and that they were interested in buying our logo, our name. I simply said it wasn't for sale, but I was curious and, and said, why? And she said, well, your logo looks very much like ours, and we, we just don't want there to be any uh, confusion. So they, they had offered us $5,000. I said, no, just days go by, I get the call from her again. They want to offer $10,000. And I said, what label is this band on? Who are they signed to? And she said, no one, they're not signed. And I said, what unsigned band has $10,000 to pay another band because their logos look alike? I said, who are you? It was CBS television, and they had a TV series starring John Stamos. This is prior to Full House called Dreams. It was really uh, his vehicle to, as a breakout star. 
and we put an injunction on the show, and I had trademarked the name The Dream. It was one of the first things I did as a manager. So we sold the name The Dream, and in exchange, we had to sign an agreement saying we wouldn't use the word dream in any way, shape, or form in the new name, which is how Extreme became Extreme, because it's actually X-Dream. So there was another metal band that had another gear incident. This time, it wasn't stolen, like in the case of Metallica, it was legally seized by a sheriff. So now the wheels start moving quickly, record companies are interested, we're getting phone calls, and one night I'm out on a date, and my date says to me, isn't that your band over there? And I look over, and my entire band, or the entire band, Extreme, are sitting at a table with a, a notorious uh, club owner slash manager from Rhode Island with paperwork all over the table. I filed a breach of contract with them. Lawsuits ensued. And it was hard to get them to understand how serious I was. So I had to go the route of impounding their equipment. They had gone off on their first real tour. Uh, their welcome home was to perform at the Channel Nightclub and to headline. And I think this was really their first time headlining on like a Saturday night at the Channel Nightclub. And we were waiting for them. I had the sheriffs waiting for them. And when the buses, when the tour buses pulled down Neko Street, they impounded all the equipment. I do believe they still played that night. I think they had to use somebody else's equipment. But, uh, you know, hatchets have been buried and, and wonderful careers have blossomed. And uh, I, I think the world of all of them. And so life goes on. By 1990, as the channel gained both fame and infamy for the variety and diversity of its programming, there were also serious issues and difficult challenges. So like a theater or even a small arena, the channel had a real strong sound system, professional stage, and really good staff to make sure that the show went off really well. So the channel also had a 2 o'clock uh, liquor license where uh, we could serve alcohol until 2 a.m., that allowed us to uh, stay open and people could come in uh, oftentimes after going to a concert in Boston or even in, in places outside of Boston and still there'd be enough time for them to come uh, to, the, to the channel after a, an arena show or a theater show somewhere else. But unlike theaters or, or arenas, when the shows would normally go on, you know, 8 o'clock or the headliner would go on at 9 or 9.30, uh, our headliners would go on at uh, midnight or even sometimes a little bit later and would have two or three openers for each band and uh, for each headline band and uh, that would allow us to have a party going on pretty much all night. We would open at nine o'clock and we'd have opening acts and a lot of those acts would have their own uh, fans coming in uh, to see them. People would uh, drift in until one o'clock or even later sometimes because after uh, they got out from a concert in the Boston Garden or the Orpheum or even uh, the Worcester Centrum, if it was early enough, they would come to the channel and close off the night and see a headlining act. Sometimes some of the headline acts that appeared in at Boston Garden or some of the other venues would come into the channel to kind of close off the night and have last call. As the club became louder and hotter with hardcore, punk, hip-hop, metal, blues, rock, and more featured regularly, the financial problems continued to mount. So money started to become tight. Everything was getting more expensive. Payroll, insurance, rent. 
repairs into the to the building. Everything was getting expensive, and uh, money was uh, started was beginning to get tight. We also uh, extended ourselves. Uh, we bought a condo uh, on South Street in the Leather District and opened an entertainment company called the Entertainment Network. We did well. We promoted some uh, interesting shows. We did Frank Sinatra at uh, Symphony Hall in 1986, Liza Minnelli at the uh, Wang Center, you know, a few uh, World Beat uh, shows at uh, the Heinz Auditorium and the Wayne Center, but they didn't all make money. Expenses were very high. So we became stretched a bit financially. More money was going out than coming in. And uh, we really weren't keeping an eye on the bottom line. We just thought the money would keep coming in. And uh, we basically lost sight of what was important. Meanwhile, Stephen DeSara was there almost every night. He had ideas about how to turn the channel around. You know, when DeSara started coming in, you know, he was a club owner. He owned a club in, uh, in Alston. And, you know, he just kind of blended into uh, everything that we were doing. You know, running the club and, you know, booking bands and, you know, issuing backstage passes and, you know, always wanting to be helpful in the actual operation of the club. And he was trustworthy. You know, you ask him to do something, he would do it. You know, like go tap, tap a keg or something, you know, he'll go do it or, you know, get changed from the office, give him the key, no problem. Just being a friend and being helpful. He, he represented himself as a lawyer but never really having passed his bar exam. But he was very smart, very knowledgeable, and he actually helped us put together the uh, bankruptcy plan, which had Chapter 11. Marula was our lawyer. He was my uh, lawyer originally, you know, from years past, and I introduced him to the group, and he was our attorney. And he was also very interested in the nightclub business. He always was. You know, like to hang around wise guys. And, you know, he was our lawyer at, in the daytime and at night. He'd also come in and, you know, kind of get into the scene. The original plan for DeSaro was to come in and uh, bring some money into the company and just do a few things, you know, to make uh, business better. When DeSaro really got comfortable with the actual operation and, you know, the momentum the club had, he decided that he was going to get intimately involved, and he introduced us to uh, somebody from Rhode Island as being the source of money, and he would uh, operate, and uh, Marula was also interested in getting part of, the, you know, becoming part of the group that would eventually buy uh, my brother and myself out. The channel filed for reorganization under Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code in January of 1990. Chapter 11, under the U.S. Bankruptcy Law, provides businesses the opportunity to protect themselves against creditors, enabling them to survive. Steve DeSaro uh, brought a proposal to me stating that he could put the money together to buy the business for me and uh, Peter, and uh, he could provide the money for refurbishing the channel, doing some uh, marketing and uh, turning uh, the place around. So I thought the offer was legitimate because the part of the ownership group included uh, Jack Burke, my partner, and Steve Marullo, who was our longtime attorney. Stephen J. Marullo, a Boston attorney, had represented the channel from the beginning. 
He had appeared on the club's behalf in numerous legal cases, including lawsuits against or defending the channel against Don Law and a variety of other cases. Well, I first became aware of the channel through Peter Boris. I mean, I, I had heard about it uh, on the radio and so on, but I had never never gone there because I wasn't exactly the demographic for it. But I did hear about it through Peter, and I met uh, Harry Boris and Jack Burke through Peter. Uh, we all became friendly. I started doing some minor legal things for the channel, and I started going to some of the shows. And as things went on, I actually became night manager for a while. I was a lawyer from 9 in the morning till 5.30 in the afternoon, and I was a club manager from 6.30 at night till 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning. Don Law was our self-sworn enemy because he felt that the channel was a threat to his monopoly on the industry in, in the Boston area to the extent that he even would threaten some of the local bands that if they appeared at the channel, they wouldn't be on the local radio stations because in his mind, he controlled the local radio stations. He went after the channel for what, when the channel got involved with the Opera House, we were able to get that suit dismissed. And instead of sharing the demographic, he decided he wanted it all for himself. So Marullo suggested that we file Chapter 11. Uh, Marullo and uh, DeSaro wanted to take over the day-to-day -day operations, and it was uh, made clear to me that in order for this deal to succeed, I would have to step back because they thought that my way of doing business was not a good business model. I was informed that there was an, a check held in escrow to affect the purchase, and it was contingent on my stepping back from the day-to-day -day operations and the control of the uh, creative process. And uh, if I did, the sale would happen. From what I saw, there was a lot of guys that thought they could do what I had done at the channel over uh, the years. All their ideas were, were different, and uh, they were all anxious to give it a try. And uh, DeSaro and his uh, team were willing to let him give it a shot. On the 10th episode of Boston Venue, The Channel Story, difficult transitions, tumultuous reorganization, internal conflict, death threats, cancellations, and guns out. Music featured in this episode is by Wargasm. Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers, Chachi LaPrette, Bob Mayo, Mike Colucci, Peter Boris, Tony Capobianco, Joanne Cody, and Steve Marullo. Boston Venue, The Channel Story, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writers, David Ginsberg and Sean McNally. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe and Jennifer C. Boris. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Learn more on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue The Channel Podcast. Leave your comments and share your stories. If you like the show, leave a review. We really appreciate it.